GDPR does not automatically give rise to compensation. I would say when you have a title like that, you get the attention of a lot of class action lawyers and perhaps companies defending class actions. That was Jonathan Armstrong. I'm Tom Fox. Welcome to the award-winning Life with GDPR, where we unpack important GDPR topics for the U.S. and EU and broader world compliance professional. In this episode, we take up a class action case, which has significant language around damages and assessing damages in GDPR class actions. We also re-emphasize the need for an appropriate and timely response for any data breach under GDPR. I know you'll enjoy this episode of Life with GDPR. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be back with Life with GDPR. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again with Jonathan Armstrong for another episode of the award-winning Life with GDPR. Welcome back, Jonathan. Thanks very much, Tom. Jonathan, there was an interesting court decision that Quarterly Compliance reported on in a client alert this week. The client alert is entitled, European Court Ruling Infringing EU GDPR Does Not Automatically Give Rise to Compensation. I would say when you have a title like that, you get the attention of a lot of class action lawyers and perhaps companies defending class actions. If my interpretation of that title is correct. What was this case about and how do you see it playing out going forward? Yeah, thanks very much, Tom. As we're recording this on the 5th, the case was yesterday. We've done a quick analysis. It's quite a long judgment, but it seems to me that I think it's mostly good news for those defending class actions, but it's qualified good news in that I think it does set clearer rules for some claimants, and some claimants will regard this as possibly a success as well. So what this is about is that under Article 82, open brackets, one, close brackets for the GDPR geeks of GDPR, anyone who's suffered material or non-material damage as a result of an infringement of GDPR has the right to receive compensation. And what the European Court of Justice, I'm going to call them the ECJ, has just decided is that not every infringement of GDPR automatically gives rise to compensation. So what was this case about? The case is called, I'm going to have a go, the Österreichische Post case. I'm going to call it the Austrian Post case. And Austrian Post collected information about the political affinities of the Austrian population. Now, as we said before on our podcasts, you always, when you're looking at GDPR cases, you've got to look at the history of that country. And this was about associating people with far-right political parties. And As anyone who knows Austria's history will know, that's always likely to be pretty sensitive. And if people are wrongly labelled, then they're going to be quite annoyed about it. So what happened was that Austrian Post used an algorithm. It defined what it called target group addresses. It set them out according to socio-demographic criteria 
and then it sold them in batches. So if, for example, you wanted to buy a batch of people who were regarded as having a high degree of affinity with the Austrian far-right populist Freedom Party, you could buy that as a batch of data to target them for advertising or for political campaigns or whatever. The individuals concerned weren't told of the label that had been applied to them, nor were they told which batch they'd been put in. And there was an individual who said that he hadn't consented to the processing of his personal data. He said he felt really upset about being batched as having a far-right uh, affinity. I know, Tom, that it, where you're sitting, for some people that's a badge of honour, not a badge of shame, but he didn't feel the same. He said that he felt a loss of confidence and he felt that he was very exposed because people thought that he was associated with the far right. And he brought legal proceedings before a court in Vienna asking for just a thousand euros as compensation and he said he wanted that for non-material damage and he asked that the processing of his data be stopped. Now the court granted the order to stop processing but they rejected the compensation claim and this went on appeal to the Austrian Supreme Court. The Austrian Supreme Court decided that there was a matter of EU law involved and it asked the ECJ to help and there's an established procedure where there is a tricky issue of European law. It goes to the ECJ for an opinion who give answers and send them back in this case to the Austrian court. And effectively, the ECJ said three fairly memorable things. First of all, it said that the right to compensation under GDPR needs three things, really. Firstly, an infringement of GDPR. Secondly, material or non-material damage resulting. And thirdly, a causal link between the damage and the infringement. So it said that not every infringement of EU GDPR gives rise by itself to a right of compensation and any other interpretation would run counter to the wording of GDPR. And just to note as a side note here, the UK isn't bound any longer by ECJ decisions, but a court in Scotland earlier this year reached more or less the same conclusions in a vaguely similar case. That case came out of an employment tribunal where an employee was successful in making a claim that he'd been effectively abused by his employer and the individual at the employer was named and he tried to bring a GDPR claim and he was knocked back on a similar basis. So the second ruling from the ECJ is that the right to compensation is not limited to non-material damage that reaches a certain threshold of seriousness. So some courts, particularly in Germany, had said that you had to be effectively non-trivial to bring a case. There are UK cases that seem to decide similarly as well, and effectively the ECJ said that you didn't need to get above a threshold of seriousness. So number one is probably bad news for claimant lawyers. 
number two, better news, because it seems that there's no sort of triviality bar that they have to jump. And then thirdly, the ECJ said that rules about the assessment of damages are down to each EU member states' courts. They're not something that the ECJ will prescribe centrally for the whole of the EU, provided that what's called equivalence and effectiveness of EU law are respected. And that's probably fairly significant as well, because some countries' courts award very small amounts of damages and others might award more. So in some respects, the case is a bit common sense. As I said, there's something in it for both sides. If you like, probably in the main, defendants will be happier than claimants. But businesses shouldn't rest on their laurels. They definitely need to try and make themselves more robust to these type of claims. And that will include, I think, maybe six things. Firstly, making the staff and board aware of the risks. Again, training will help here. Secondly, doing regular compliance audits or reviews to look at issues that might attract class action lawyers, for example. Thirdly, looking at the liability provisions in vendor agreements, revising them where appropriate. People tend to often not negotiate the liability provisions and are left holding the baby, for example, when a vendor's been at fault. We're seeing a lot of vendor breaches at the moment. One we've worked on recently affected about one in 30 of the working population in in the UK. So these big breaches are around and you need to look at vendor agreements particularly. Fourthly, ensuring where you can that legal professional privilege applies in an internal investigation. We've talked about that before. But an investigation report that doesn't have privilege is manner to a class action lawyer. That's you're going to make all their dreams in one day. So think very carefully about privilege. Fifthly, look at insurance. Obviously, we know that the insurance rules have changed. We've talked about that before. But insurance still is available. And I think this year's market is better than last year's. Premiums haven't gone up for many people. Some of them have actually managed to negotiate a rate reduction by proving that they're a better risk. So insurance can still be the answer in many cases. And then sixthly, of course, if you get a claim or even if you get subject access requests or complaints or intimation of claims, you've got to act quickly and make sure that you have a strategy to look at this. Because if you don't, The case is likely to be worked up. It'll be put to litigation funders who are still operating across the EU, and you're likely to face a significant claim as a result. So you do need a strategy in place, I think, to try and minimize the harm. But as I say, on balance, the Austrian Post case is going to be good news for many defendants, I think. I was particularly struck by a couple of things you said at the end, and I hate to say You've been saying these for a long time, but you've been saying these for a long time. Number one, <laughs> quickly respond, quickly assess, quickly remediate, quickly disclose if necessary, and quickly engage counsel. Are you really still having to get that message out? 
Yeah, I think that's right. The breach that I've talked about with 850,000 people in the UK and Ireland, the vendor particularly was slow out of the blocks. And in part, attackers know when to strike. A lot of incidents, we've talked about this before, seem to happen or are discovered on a Friday. We know that some of the uh, bigger gangs, those associated with North Korea, for example, are really good at knowing when there are public holidays around the world. They know that they get extra time for the attack then. And equally, they know that organizations are likely to be slower out of the blocks. And regulators aren't forgiving about that. We have a case from Ireland, for example, where the regulator says breach response is 24-7-365. If you haven't got the right team in place, even on New Year's Day or on Christmas Day or Easter or Passover or during fasting, then that's your fault, not ours. And regulators are not forgiving. In the case I've talked about, the attack was over Easter weekend, the response was delayed as a result. But I'm still seeing people sit on breaches, and partly because they haven't got the right procedures in place to accelerate things quickly and escalate them to the right level in the organization. And regulators are getting very unforgiving about that. So are claimants as well. They expect to be told about an incident if there's a legal obligation to notify them, and they get mad if you don't tell them. The, I was also intrigued by your remarks around perhaps a softening of insurance coverage. There was a fairly significant case in the United States this week where the Lloyd Syndicate was found liable because they could not prove that the war exclusion prevention applied and basically that unless there's a declaration of war, a formal declaration of war, that the war exclusion does not apply. So that was, a, I thought, a pretty significant development. But are you seeing a softening of the market? Or does that mean rates are increasing to more adequately protect carriers? Yeah, a few things to unpack from that. And first of all, I think that the you're referring to the Merck case. It's in some respects a lesson from history rather than from a lesson that, of what's happening at the moment. It concerns a believe I'm right in saying the NotPetya ransomware strain, which was eventually attributed to Russian threat actors, I believe, by the FBI, although it wasn't attributed to them at the time. First of all, I think the attribution piece is happening more quickly. You can look at, for example, the sanctions I think we talked about on an earlier podcast by the UK for the first time and the US jointly against Russian threat actors for virus activity. So I think attribution takes place much more quickly. And secondly, most insurers have known about the Merck case for a number of years now and have changed their policy wording to deal with some of the grey areas in earlier iterations of the policy. Thirdly, the Lloyd's rules changed on 31st of March on nation state. And I think probably some elements of the Merck case will be sound under new policy wording, effectively saying that the insurer has to 
show the defense that it relies on. But I think that's going to be easier for insurers going forward than it was historically at the time of these not petra attacks. So the whole world's become more sophisticated. But in terms of policies, I think that a lot of organizations we deal with were struggling either to get cover or to get cover at acceptable rates last year. I think that's a little bit easier if you look at some of the market reports that I've seen. But insurers are definitely more selective and are asking more questions. It's getting a little bit more like motor insurance. In the days of Henry Ford, you just turned up with the motor and got insurance. And then insurers started asking more questions so that if you're trying to arrange motor insurance for the first time now, you're probably going to be on the call for about 20 minutes telling people whether you've got a garage, off-street parking, they're going to assess your record as well. It's similar to that with cyber now. So a lot of organizations are being sent questionnaires. They're pretty detailed. They're asking them about things like training. And bear in mind, of course, that a lot of insurers aren't giving credit for online training. They say that they're not sure that's effective. So some insurers are going to put you through a number of hoops before they'll write cover or before they'll write cover at an acceptable premium. So you can't rely. It's not like the olden days where you either fixed the problem or you insured it. You're now effectively obliged to try and do all you can to man the defences and only then will you be avail will you be able to get insurance at an acceptable rate. The, la nice. the last thing to say, Tom, is that I'm also seeing more insurers look at whether the insured has told fibs in its proposal forms and insurers are denying coverage if, for example, the organization says that it's got MFA in place, but it only had MFA in place for seven systems and not eight. And again, vendors are part of the story here. If you're outsourcing payroll, you've told your insurer you've got MFA across the estate, but the payroll provider hasn't, then that's likely to be difficult for you to gain your losses back. So again, people have to look at the accuracy of the statements they're making as well. As a former insurance coverage lawyer, I can only intone, do not lie on your insurance application coverage that will be used against you in a court of law to deny you coverage yep. after you've been told that before you get to a court of law. Absolutely. Jonathan, we're going to link to this article on the Quarterly Compliance website for our listeners, and I look forward to continuing this conversation. Absolutely, Tom. Thank you. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. If you've enjoyed our podcast, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever great podcasts are listened to. We've linked to the quarterly compliance news alert on this case. So for more information, check out that news alert and the quarterly compliance site. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This is Tom Fox. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. In 2023, if you've ever considered starting your own podcast or would like some advice on the production or posting of your podcast, I hope you will consider utilizing the Compliance Podcast Network, the only podcast network dedicated to compliance. If you'd like more information on the Compliance Podcast Network, you can contact me via email at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks so much for listening. This episode of Life with GDPR has been a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.